Welcome to Uplifting Conversations. Today's episode is with my friend, Lenore Anderson, president and co-founder for Alliance for Safety and Justice. The word that I keep coming back to is uplifting. I have this conviction based on my lived experience that uplifting people or the planet doesn't have to be draining. It can actually feel uplifting to the person who's making that impact. Welcome, Lenore. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and be in conversation with you. Yeah, no, I, I um, obviously am a big uh, supporter of your work and I will um, uh, disclaim, not that there has to be a disclaimer, I, I'm a, a board member at Alliance for Safety and Justice and huge, huge, huge um, supporter, believer, uh, fan, if you can have a fan of, of the work. And so honored to have you in the space today and and really, really excited to, to share all that you are doing and Jay and Oswald and everyone else that at ASJ is doing for us <laughs> that a lot of us don't even know about. And so, um, uh, yeah, happy to share, happy to have you. Thank you. Um, can, can you share um, a little bit about um, first the organization and, and, and your, your kind of path um, to co-founding and, and now um, president at ASJ? Sure. So Alliance for Safety and Justice is an advocacy organization. We uh, focus on uh, trying to improve the country's public safety and criminal justice systems. And we do that through advocating for changes in state laws and organizing people. That's sort of our formula for change. We work in eight of the largest states in the country. So in addition to California, where I reside, we also work in Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Ohio, Illinois, uh, Arizona, et cetera. Um, and in those states, uh, we uh, pass legislative reforms uh, as well as ballot initiatives, and we also organize two constituencies. We organize people who are survivors of crime, who want a new approach to public safety. Our uh, flagship organizing program is called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. And we also organize people with old records who are advocating for reforms that remove the barriers that people with records face to stability and mobility. And that's through a program called Time Done. Yeah, and uh, can you talk a little bit? Like, I think I was blown away by the scale of this uh, organization and effort uh, when we first talked. Can you give people a, 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 an idea of how many members are in the organization and, and what kind of legislation um, the organization has worked to, to pass? Sure. Well, uh, we started in just one state in California in 2012. I founded the original organization, Californians for Safety and Justice, back then. And then Robert Rooks, my co-founder, and I, we uh, co-launched Alliance for Safety and Justice in 2016. So that's how long we've been around. We just made a decade um, this past year. And um, in that time, we have passed uh, 91 different uh, legislative reforms in eight different states. And when you kind of tally up the impact of those reforms, uh, we contributed to a, reduce, uh, a reduction in incarceration and the number of people on probation by about 500,000 people. Um, so we've shrunk uh, the incarceration and supervision system by about um, half a million people so far. And we've also um, increased expenditures on 
uh, community safety programs like trauma recovery centers for victims, uh, mental health uh, programs, uh, diversion programs, reentry. We've expanded public investments in those support programs by about a billion dollars. So we've really sought to do that sort of shrink what's not working, expand what is kind of approach to our advocacy. And then just in terms of how big our organization is, we just hit 300,000 members, which we're really excited about. We have roughly, um, that's roughly equal split between crime survivors for safety and justice uh, headed up by Aswad Thomas and Time Done headed up by uh, Jay Jordan. Yeah, and and I think you you said this really quickly, but I think this is a really, really, really important and unique attribute to the organization. So you talked about crime survivors being an important part of the voice in the organization. Can you talk a little bit about the organizing that you do and whose voices are included in that in the organizing and um, maybe how effective that is to work across um, the political spectrum? And so, yeah, all, sure. all of that jumps out to me uh, still. Yeah, well, so, you know, when you take a take a zoom out and look at mass incarceration in the United States, um, one of the political justifications for continuing to have these really tough laws and uh, this really wildly high incarceration rate compared to the rest of the world, one of the political justifications that you'll hear in state houses across the country is, well, this is good for public safety. Yeah, you know, there may be problems with it and we might need to tweak this system. It's racially biased, it costs a lot, but ultimately the justification is, well, this is good for victims and this is good for, for public safety. We would hurt victims if we, you know, sort of reduced incarceration too much or did too much criminal justice reform. Well, when we started, we kind of asked ourselves, how, how do we challenge that? Because those of us who have worked either in local public safety systems uh, like I have or at the community level, I've done some community organizing as well. We know from experience that most people hurt by crime and violence are actually not benefited by mass incarceration at all. So when we started building our advocacy, we decided, you know what, we really need to challenge that myth on its head. We need to go out and we need to talk to everyday people who've been hurt by crime and violence and ask them, what were their experiences with the criminal justice system? And importantly, what are their policy preferences? And so we started off early, you know, we did focus groups, small, um, you know, community centers, and then we started doing more professional surveys of thousands of victims across the country. In every time that we have surveyed victims of crime, uh, doesn't matter, um, you know, urban, rural, uh, political party preference, um, uh, racial demographic, gender demographic, age, when you, doesn't matter, their majority of victims of crime actually strongly prefer rehabilitation and prevention over tough punishments and extreme sentencing. And this sort of notion that victims of crime are actually not clamoring for this sort of extreme tough justice that we have, that really like flips on its head the sort of common logic that has been one of the reasons that this system kind of keeps churning forward. And so that's sort of why we said, hey, hold on. 
if the people in whose names this is supposed to all be being built for don't even want it, then they've got to be heard. How could we continue to do it? Um, so that's really why we started organizing survivors. So we, um, you know, we started doing uh, outreach and surveys and community building events, and then that turned into leadership development and activism opportunities, and then that turned into bringing up, you know, busloads of survivors to state capitals to sit down with legislators and sit down with governors and talk about a new vision for public safety, and it's and it's just really powerful to see the light bulbs go off. You know, you know, legislators kind of, they think they know what you're going to say when you say, hey, you know, we've got a group of um, survivors of crime who want to talk with you today about public safety. They sort of have their own sort of narrative in their head about what they think that conversation is going to be. And then to hear our members say, you know, don't build that prison in our name, please put the money where it would be so much more effective at the community level. You know, it's it just it's a total transformation in the conversation. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, I, I, it may have been Ohio, but I know either you or Jay, I had a really fabulous example of kind of working across the aisles and and um, just the first time that uh, survive crime survivor voices had been centered for a legislature in one state and just seeing the shift of perspective um, in either that governor or legislature in that state. And I remember uh, just kind of being moved by the power of, of that particular story. Um, you are doing something um, personally now to, to further center uh, the voices of, of crime survivors and new voices in this conversation. Can you share a little bit about that effort? You mean this, my yes. book? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just making sure, you know, we launch projects uh, every third day at Alliance for Safety and Justice. So just yeah. making sure I got the right one. Yeah. Um, so so I wrote a book. Tisanta wrote a book. It's the coolest thing. Um, and um, it's called In Their Names, um, uh, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. And, um, you know, I, I, the journey to write this book um, was a long one. I, I, I had the idea, you know, more than five years ago, um, but it wasn't until um, COVID hit that I had a little extra time. <laughs> you know, Robert Brooks and I used to be on planes, you know, every, every week. Um, and then COVID hit and, you know, we weren't uh, running around as much. So I decided to kind of dust off my outline and, and put the book together. But, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book, so the book is about that story of how mass incarceration actually hurts victims of crime and how if we cared about public safety, true safety, we would have a completely different conversation starting with the voices and experiences of people who have been unprotected and unhelped. That's really what the book is about. And, and the reason I thought it would be important to go ahead and, and put this together and get it out there was really what we saw happen in the aftermath. Um, you know, COVID hit and those of us who've done work on um, public safety um, for a long time could, could have told you when you destabilize that much of the economy, that many communities, that when there's that much disruption in people's lives, you know, unless we provide real help, 
we're going to see violence rates shift. Well, that's what happened, right? And we saw, you know, communities um, that were struggling before COVID uh, were certainly struggling after. Uh, people who were living in the economic margins before were certainly living even more so. Um, you know, there was seen extreme uh, rates of uh, death increasing and all of this happening on extreme uh, racial, uh, racially disparate uh, levels. And so, you know, when those violence rates went up uh, in 2020 and 21, the pundits come out and it sounds like it's the 1990s all over again. We've got legislators calling for tough on crime and law and order and increased sentences and, you know, all of those sort of classic mantras that politicians like to throw out when crime rates go up we're starting to rear their head again. And I thought, you know, we have seen this story before and it's really important that we put to bed this, this myth that we are somehow helping victims of crime by uh, going the tough route. And so that's sort of why I decided to um, go ahead and, and get the book completed. And so it came out um, in uh, November uh, 22. Uh, so just a couple of months ago, it hit the stores and um, it's published by the New Press. And I'm donating the proceeds to Alliance for Safety and Justice. Yes, I love I love it. I, I obviously am a supporter. So everyone, buy one, buy one for your friends. Can you can you hold up the book and give them the name again? Yes. <laughs> Um, there is the book in their names, a little, uh, a little hard to see with the reflection from the window, um, but you can get this at amazon.com. Um, you can get it at bookshop.org, um, or any of your favorite, uh, local independent bookstores. And if they don't have it, um, just tell them that they should, and, and they'll get it in stock. And, um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So we'll drop it in the notes and, and put it everywhere for people to access. And so that is the tremendous, amazing work that you're doing. And, and, and so you are clearly uh, what, what we call an uplifter. <laughs> but this, uh, one of the things that we want, want to accomplish with these uplifting conversations is helping people um, follow the journeys of- Sorry. Oh, no problem. Uh, I can't, and I couldn't hear in your background anyway, but we want to help people follow the, the journey of folks who are doing uplifting work, like what you're doing at ASJ, like what you've done uh, authoring this, like you have been doing even before this. Um, and so where I would uh, like to start or what I would um, be interested in hearing is kind of what, what brought you to this work? What was the, what was the gap uh, that you saw, including kind of what, what, you, what you felt seeing that gap? that compelled you to kind of give your life over to um, uplifting public safety and, and criminal justice? Sure, well, you know, I, I always start, um, you know, with, with uh, the value um, that it, I, I'm rooted in, um, which is uh, a value of uh, advancing racial equality in the United States. Um, you know, I uh, 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 grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, when uh, the era of mass incarceration was sort of at its height. Um, you know, back then, the politicians used to uh, talk about, you know, um, you know, basically launching a war on youth. Um, and I was a youth in, um, you know, in California, one of the toughest incarceration states in the nation at the time. And, um, you know, despite the fact that I uh, was, you know, getting in trouble with police and teachers and neighbors, 
um, you know, the second and third chances I was given as a as a middle class white American on my way to adulthood, uh, you know, were the difference maker for me in terms of ending up uh, successful and ending up uh, being able to, uh, you know, a law school of all places. Um, you know, at the same exact time that um, I was given second and third chances, uh, the the government, especially in large states like California, were uh, literally arresting and incarcerating almost exclusively youth of color uh, for things very similar to to what I was uh, doing and the trouble I was getting into um, as a youth. Well, you know, I, I didn't have enough of an appreciation at at sixteen and seventeen uh, to to what was happening. Um, but as I uh, ended up in college um, and and on to law school and, and got more aware of uh, the uh, extreme uh, mass incarceration problem in the country and its foundational um, uh, 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 racist uh, nature, um, you know, it, it became uh, important for me. Uh, you know, you you can't look away, right? Um, I started working with um, kids who had been incarcerated uh, just right after I graduated uh, from law school. My first job out of law school was uh, representing youth who uh, were facing years behind bars and, and working with their parents, trying to advocate for um, alternatives to incarceration. And, um, you know, we're talking young people who were facing um, literally um, solitary confinement years at a time at ages 14, 15, 16, um, you know, at being pepper sprayed by guards facing, um, you know, fights, daily suppression and fights um, inside um, facilities literally designed to cut people off from humanity. And these are these are kids. And when you look and you ask the question, how did this young person, what did this person do that got them in trouble that got them placed in these um you know horrific youth prisons um you wind the clock back the kinds of things that got them in trouble with police and prosecutors initially were just not all that different and you know i think that the um the the onus is on white americans to do what we can um to advance racial equality um this is a system that is um, uh, broken at its core. And um, so that's where, you know, my commitment came from was sitting in courtrooms and, and watching kids, um, the vast majority of whom were kids of color, um, get shipped off to warehouse style prisons for, um, for literally no reason. And, um, you know, watching how that impacted the rest of their lives. Um, you know, most are um, in adult prison to this day, uh, you know, and those are those are the kinds of uh, early experiences I had as an attorney that uh, made it clear to me that uh, this this was something that that needed to change. Um, so I've worn a lot of different hats trying to figure out the right way to change it. Um, but but at its core, I think that's that's why so many of us do this work around criminal justice reform. Yeah, I guess my I, where my mind goes is that you don't undertake um, work that you think is ineffective. And this was such a big problem and it was going in the wrong direction so fast. Like what gave you some kind of morsel of hope that you could make the kind of dent that you've been, you've actually been able to make, particularly here, like here in California, um, like you, you have kind of been an agent for actual change. What gave you hope that that was possible? Yeah, you know, um, I, it, most advocates, most social justice advocates, um, you know, we lose a lot more than we win. 
Um, but what matters is the one win. <laughs> what matters is that one time you were able to change some part of a penal code to instead of it saying shall, you're going to change it to may. And you actually got that one line, tiny little bit of discretion built in. And then, you know, that that little victory, it just sort of fuels you to, to kind of try and uh, try, try and go again. Um, you know, the courage that I see everyday people uh, take to stand up. Uh, for change and stand up against a system that wasn't designed to be transparent, that wasn't designed to be fair, that wasn't designed to um, to be easily movable and malleable. Um, the courage that the people I work with and and that the people um, who've been most impacted by this have have shown in changing it is really what gives me hope. And then when we have one win, um, you know, success begets success. Right. So if you can, you know, you know, if you, you're going to you're going to lose a whole bunch, but if you can get just to that one win, then you're going to kind of open the door and and it'll uh, create some space for for more wins. And let me tell you, you know, we're living in a time where um, there's some remarkable, remarkable reforms that have um, emerged just in the last decade. But 20, 25 years ago, we were winning much smaller reforms. And those, our willingness to go ahead and jump in and get what little change we could and then demonstrate how to get more change, that has really been what's led the door open. So in some ways, um, you know, th those incremental shifts that build up years at a time allow for those more bold victories that we've been able to achieve more recently. Got it. And, and yeah, that, that's like such an inspirational uh, approach to, to addressing a problem that's, that's so incredibly big. It, um, you, you said something about figuring out the right way to, to kind of approach the problem or access the problem and probably kind of going at some avenues that weren't the most effective at times and finding those, like what, what did you do from where you sat initially to sort of uh, start with the tools that were right in front of you? Well, I, I can just tell you, you know, the story of the California uh, Proposition 47 campaign in, in 2014, Toussaint, this was um, a kind of an unlikely uh, victory. So um, when I started Californians for Safety and Justice in 2012, and, um, you know, at the time there was a, a small group of organizations um, who were working on legislation to just do one simple change, which is to take drug possession, simple drug possession, um, which voters across the political spectrum do not think should result in incarceration time. Um, but back in 2012, the idea of the legislation was, hey, um, change it from felony to misdemeanor so you don't get that incarceration time, just for simple drug possession. The first one of these pieces of legislation made it, um, couldn't even make it out of the couple of committees that um, were voting on it. Legislators were so scared to look soft on crime that they didn't even vote it out of committee, um, which means it basically died, right? So the first version of the bill dies. The next year, those same uh, smart advocates, they said, okay, we'll make it discretionary. Prosecutors can choose whether it be a felony or misdemeanor. That made it out of committee and then didn't get signed by the governor, again, because of pressure from law enforcement associations and criminal justice bureaucracies saying, oh, this is going to be soft on crime, all this kind of stuff. So we looked at that and we said, okay, 
if the legislature can't deliver something, let's see what the voters would be willing to do. So we decided to use a different tool in the toolbox. So one tool is going to the legislature in the state capitol and introducing legislation. Another is going directly to voters. At least in California, you have that option, not every state. So we did a poll. We did a public opinion research poll, and we asked voters a whole bunch of different um, opinions that they might have on criminal justice reform. And what we found was that there, there was a huge gap. Voters of all stripes were, you know, we waste too much money on prisons. You can't incarcerate your way to safety. We will uh, support any number of type of reforms if it saves money and reduces that prison's budget. So we looked at what voters were saying and we said, wow, that's a big gap compared to where the legislators are. Let's put together a ballot initiative and let's get it in front of the voters. So we wrote uh, what became uh, Proposition 47 in 2014. And this was a ballot initiative that took six uh, low-level crimes and reclassified them from felony to misdemeanor so they wouldn't go to state prison, and then annually requires the state of California to collect that prison's money that is saved from reduced incarceration and reallocate it into youth programs, victim services programs, and mental health. So we uh, we put this ballot initiative together and we said, we're going to just go to the voters, forget working with the legislature on this simple change. We're just going to take it directly to the voters. And what we put in front of the voters was actually bigger than what that legislation would have done. Right. The, the legislation was pretty small, but we're like, hey, if we're going to go to the voters, we're actually going to make it worth the time and money it takes to do a ballot initiative campaign, which is not cheap. Um, so we uh, collected signatures, we got it on the ballot, um, but when we started talking to voters about the campaign, we talked to them about the real world impacts, right? This is not a choice between criminal justice reform or safety. This is a choice on how you want safety to be achieved. Mm -hmm. Do you either want bloated prisons that are wasting a bunch of public resources or do you want to shrink that prison population and put the money into prevention at the community level? The choice was clear for voters. We won with 60% yes on election day in 2014. And um, it was, you know, it was a huge victory. Nearly a billion dollars has been reallocated since that thing passed from the California prisons budget into prevention programs, trauma recovery centers, uh, diversion, and the uh, overall incarceration population in the state has come down quite a bit as well. Oh, that's amazing. That is, that is such uh, incredible work. And I love, I love the whole concept of not allowing safety to become like the, the domain of this like mass incarceration, over-policed state, but like safety is uh, the domain. All of us own safety and nobody is anti-safety, right? None, none of us are anti-safety. So that, I think that's just incredible. I, I, I'm so inspired by your work and everything that you've done and, and the journey. I would. Uh, what's something that um, if people wanted to step into supporting um, uh, public safety and, and justice and uplifting that as an issue and having their voices uh, be felt on this issue, uh, what's something that you would suggest or, or a place that they should start? 
You know, it's such a great question and because it's, it's an exciting uh, time to be working on this issue. You know, I, I remember 20, 25 years ago, there was like two, three organizations and, you know, sharing one copier and, you know, just trying to kind of <laughs> hustle to make it work. Right. And now there's there's actually a really a huge movement uh, for reimagined public safety and a huge movement for criminal justice reform. So, you know, a, a, a new activists today have have a ton of opportunities. I mean, I think at minimum, you know, donate to your favorite criminal justice and public safety reform organization. There's so many to choose from. You know, if you want to support Alliance for Safety and Justice, that's fantastic. It's allianceforsafetyandjustice.org. Um, so, you know, there's financial support, there's making your voice heard on social media. Um, you know, there's tons of organizations you can follow. Um, if you go, if you go to allianceforsafetyandjustice.org and follow us, you, that'll also click through and show you all the other organizations or many of the other organizations that are out there um, that you can follow. But then you can also get involved. Um, you know, one of the things that's so amazing is, um, you know, this last election cycle, right? I talked about how when crime went started to go back up in in 2020, right? We heard those same old talking points and you know law and order and tough on crime. This last election cycle, it didn't really work, right? Like most voters actually stood strong and stood on the side of like you know we're kind of not buying it. There's the exceptions to the rule, but by and large, most candidates who were getting attacked for having taken a criminal justice reform position, maintained their seats, and most reforms remained in, intact. And, and I share that good news because what it means is there's a real movement to do something different. And there's a real popular consciousness and understanding right now that we need to advance public safety by investing in communities. Strong communities are safe communities, and that's where the public wants public officials to put money. So the last opportunity I'll lift up is if you live in a city, the chances of there being a reentry program or a victim services program or a mental health program or a jobs placement program that could use some help, they're, they're probably pretty high. Those are programs that are getting more and more popular, but they still need a lot more support in terms of volunteers. I would really encourage people to just get in your local community and, and start supporting a community-based public safety organization. Mm. Well, I think that is a great set of on-ramps. I, uh, I am going to continue to to support uh, Alliance for Safety and Justice however I can, and of course, uh, continue to support uh, you and, and, and your work. And I am deeply grateful uh, for you uh, taking the time to share a little bit of that with, with me and, and everyone who's listening. Hey, I should mention one other thing, which is this April, um, we're having a huge uh, convening in um, Sacramento. So we organize something every year called Survivors Speak, and it's for um, uh, uh, survivors to come together and make their voices known in the, in the public policy process. We gather in Sacramento. This is our 10th annual convening this year. So we're, it's really going to be a special one. Um, there's workshops, there's 
uh, trainings. Uh, we do a rally on the Capitol the second day. Um, you know, we have a dance party. We know how to have a good time mm -hmm. and also make our voices heard. So we really encourage everyone to come out. If you want more information about Survivor Speak, you can go to survivorspeak.org. And um, there you can either sign up to, to come out to one of our events or um, join uh, another uh, one of those offerings. Yes, and I should have mentioned that because you can reach out to me for information also because I am going to be on the host committee for oh, uh, great. Survivor Speak. I talked <laughs> to Jay. He had a mouthful of tacos when I when I called him. He said, you don't remember the whole committee? And so <laughs> I, I, I am absolutely uh, going to be there and supporting and I hope others will, will come and support with me. Awesome. I'm excited to see you there in April. All right. Thank you so much. Lamar. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and click the notification button so you never miss an episode.